Proverbs 18, verse 22, up through Proverbs 19, verse 23. So that text is the next chunk in uh, the, the book of Proverbs. So Proverbs 18, 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. The poor man uses entreaties, but the rich answers roughly. A man who has friends, and the Masoretic text there, the, the Hebrew text says, may come to ruin. Okay, so, a man who has friends may come to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Better, chapter 19, verse 1, better is the poor who walks in his integrity than one who is perverse in his lips and is a fool. Also, it is not good for a soul to be without knowledge, and he sins who hastens with his feet. The foolishness of a man twists his way, and his heart frets against the Lord. Wealth makes many friends, but the poor is separated from his friend. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who speaks lies will not escape. Many entreat the favor of the nobility, and every man is a friend to one who gives gifts. All the brothers of the poor hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He may pursue them with words, yet they abandon him. He who gets wisdom loves his own soul. He who keeps understanding will find good. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who speaks lies shall perish. Luxury is not fitting for a fool, much less for a servant to rule over princes. The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. The king's wrath is like the roaring of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. A foolish son is the ruin of his father, and the contentions of a wife are a continual dripping. Houses and riches are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Laziness casts one into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. He who keeps the commandment keeps his soul, and he who is careless of his ways will die. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given. Chasten your son while there is hope, and do not set your heart on his destruction. A man of great wrath will suffer punishment, for if you rescue him, you will have to do it again. Listen to counsel and, re and receive instruction, that you may be wise in your latter days. There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. What is desired in a man is kindness. And a poor man is better than a liar. The fear of the Lord leads to life. And he who has it will abide in satisfaction. He will not be visited with evil. You may be seated.
I've titled this sermon, Companions and Kings, because the text is about wealth and wisdom in terms of kings and also in terms of the home. And it talks about the private sphere and the public sphere, and it bounces between the two. The concern about companions is a concern that dramatically affects your private life and also your public life. And in caring properly for the companions of your private sphere, you will find that it brings public honor. Now, some of the things we'll run into is it talks about the selection of a good wife, implies leading her well, being careful about selecting and caring for friends, and seeking to be a valuable friend yourself, and being careful to discipline and disciple your children. And it talks about the encouragement for the children themselves to be discipled and disciplined and to encourage it, and how all of these things tend toward public honor. So the first, the, the, the major structure of this section, when we look at verses 22 through 7, so we have chapter 18, verse 22, up through verse 7, this is going to be the, the first chunk of text. Now, verses 8 through 15 are the second chunk of text, and lastly, verses 16 to 23 of chapter 19. The first section deals with poverty and wealth and companions. And then the next section deals with wisdom in the court or in the the king's domain and also in the home. And then the last section deals with encouragement to educate sons so that they understand the value of showing kindness to the needy. So the first section, it begins, verse 22, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. The beginning with the wife is important because the wife is the chief companion of your life. Your wife is the chief companion of your life. Women, obviously, your husband is the chief companion of your life, but the selection of a spouse is the most important friendship choice that you will make. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Now, the presumption here is not just any wife, but rather a wife of discretion, a wife of wisdom, a godly woman. That this is a gift from God that is more valuable than any other temporal gift. The, the gift of saving faith is obviously the greatest thing. The knowledge of God is life. But the gift of a godly wife is the gift of a woman who has chosen to put herself under the authority of the man, to serve under his discretion, to be one who is granting herself to him. And so the giving of a wife is the giving of the most valuable gift that one can receive apart from saving faith. Now, this introduction leads into thinking about other things. We have, we have this idea of the chief companion and the greatness of this gift. We move into verse 23. The poor man uses entreaties, but the rich answers, answers roughly. 
The idea here is essentially a man who is of a lower status or has less money is going to tend to use politeness. And a man of higher status or with more money is going to tend to not. Why is that? It is because of the general tendency for men to view money as the thing that solves everything else. And so if you have more money, the general tendency towards thinking, I don't need you, is going to make it so that there's this sense that other people are only useful insofar as they serve me and they should want to be around me because I have money that I can give them. So they can tolerate me being a jerk. It makes my life better. It makes it faster. And they can put up with it because I drip money. That's the general idea. This is, this is the status-oriented world that most people live in. They, they live in a way where they treat people nicely if they believe that they can get something out of them. And so we think about this, why is it that rich people tend to have followers who chase after that accompanying because of the opportunity to get money from them? So you have people who are not wise, not interesting, not pleasant to be around, but who are rich and have hangers-on. This has always been the case. Princes and nobles and rich people have always had people who chase them in order to get access to their money and power. And so, this tendency to not examine self, but to have flatterers around who want to get things out of you, if you have money and status, what happens is there's a tendency towards believing that you don't do things wrong. There's the tendency of the trap setting for self and the answering roughly is contrasted with entreaties. Now, besides just roughness, what's the difference between answering roughly and an entreaty? Answering roughly is telling somebody yes or no. Entreaties are asking for things. So when you recognize your own poverty, you tend to ask for things. But when you don't, you tend to not ask and tend to think that you are full and have plenty to give and you say yes or no. The Lord Jesus Christ talks about those who are poor in spirit. The poor in spirit recognize that they don't have their own righteousness. The poor in spirit recognize that they don't have the resources they need to do all of their duties. The poor in spirit realize that they need to go to the Father in prayer. And so this tendency to think of yourself as rich, to think of yourself as poor, depending on the context, can become increasingly important. When we look at God, we need to think of ourselves in terms of not having riches of merit. We have merit in Christ. We have a treasury of merit in Christ. A great wealth of it. But we do not have it in ourselves. And so we look to God to provide it. And when we look at our resources, even if our bank account has more zeros than we have time to list, we need to realize that unless God blesses it, our wealth can be lost in a moment, can be destroyed, can be ineffectual, can be spent for our own harm. And so the general tendency of men is to value the rich and look down on the poor. And this is going to be assaulted in the last portion.
we're introduced to the category of the rich and the poor. And the end, the father is telling the son why you should not look at the world as people tend to look at the world. They do not realize, they do not know what they are throwing away. So he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Now, let me ask you, do young women tend to have large quantities of money? If you are particularly ambition-minded, you might find yourself seeking to marry for money. And so this text is going to also help us to think about wives in their proper way. Okay, finding a wife, good thing. And so if finding a wife is a good thing, putting off a godly, wise woman because she doesn't have money would be foolish. Now, most men aren't looking for the woman to provide, but it has been known to happen. And even the wealthy sometimes seek to marry another person based upon the level of wealth that they have. And so there can be a tendency to look at money and social status as the things to focus on for marriage. Wisdom is the principal thing for yourself and also in selecting your spouse. The poor man uses entreaties but the rich answers roughly. If wealth is the principal thing that men use to differentiate status, what is the thing that often is used by women to think of themselves where they land? What is the social thing that is pointed to as the thing that helps us to value men differently and women differently? So if money and power are the principal things for men, we all know that Outward appearance is the principal thing that is used in the worldly social order for the differentiation of the status of women. Do you find that women who think of themselves as particularly good-looking are more or less polite? The poor man uses entreaties, but the rich answers roughly. And so just as man can think of his wealth and power as a thing that allows him to treat others roughly, a woman can start to think that her beauty is a basis to treat people roughly. And so we have to realize that none of these things come from ourselves. None of them give us a standing in ourselves. And so, verse 24, a man who has friends... And your Bible says, must himself be friendly, but the footnote is going to say that the MT, which in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, that means the Masoretic text. Okay, so the Masoretic text um, is a Hebrew text, the oldest of which we have come from about the year 1000 AD. They are copies that have been made by the Masoretes, which are Jewish scholars who very carefully counted and tracked the letters in their manuscripts and reproduce them by hand. So the Masoretic text is generally looked upon as the best text 
the Old Testament. So for some reason, the Greek manuscripts of the Septuagint, the Syriac, the, uh, the, the Targum and the Vulgate, they, they all say must himself be friendly. And I don't know why, but the New King James says must himself be friendly. So the Hebrew, the Hebrew, a man who has friends may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Right? The alternative reading is, a man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The, the but doesn't make quite as much sense there, the contrast. The Hebrew reading makes far more sense. So a man who has friends may come to ruin. The idea here is, you know, if people think that friends bring success, you can come to ruin and be surrounded by friends. And why is that? It's because friends can abandon you. And so there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So in the context, right, typically people quote this and they go, who's the friend that sticks closer than a brother? Jesus. Well, it's true. But where is that in the context? What is the beginning of this section is chapter 18, verse 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. The idea here is friends don't necessarily prevent you from falling to ruin. And in fact, they will tend to abandon you. But the relationship with the wife is such that she will be closer to you than a brother. She becomes your next of kin. When you marry, if you have a godly wife, and if you are faithful to her, then what you have is a covenanted alliance that makes it so that you share property. And so that if you come to ruin, she comes to ruin. And you will both seek to get out of it. And so the encouragement here is to think about the value of the loyalty of a godly wife. And to think about your companions and the chief companion. Friends do not guarantee success, but a godly wife will be loyal. And God is the greatest friend. And Christ lays down his life for his friends. And there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And husbands are called to be friends like Christ to their wives. And to lay down their lives to serve their wives by leading them as prophets, priests, and kings. It is your duty, men to wash your wife in the word, to sacrifice your present happiness to teach your wife, to teach her, to rebuke her, to correct her, and to train her in righteousness from the word. When you serve your wife, you serve yourself. Now, that's a hard thing to hear, the idea that a husband should do all those things for you ladies. But the idea is that the man has additional responsibilities, and he is to take responsibility for bearing certain burdens he is more rough-hewn than you are in order to be able to deal with the maintenance of a frame of a household. And you are the weaker vessel designed to be more glorious in outward appearance and in the making of the beauties of the glory of a home. And so this organization of the home is designed by God. And so... If you desire a wife or a husband and do not have it, pray. Because the Lord is the one that gives.
verse 1 of chapter 19. Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than one who is perverse in his lips and is a fool. Also, it is not good for a soul to be without knowledge, and he sends who hastens with his feet. The foolishness of a man twists his way, and his heart frets against the Lord. Now, being poor and having integrity, even though you have to ask nicely for things, is far better than being a hypocrite who uses words in vain to gain riches and shows himself to be a fool, even though that might allow you to be able to speak harshly and giving answers to other people. That's a statement that integrity is more important than status. Verse 2 teaches us that knowledge is better than money. It's not good for a soul to be without knowledge. And acting swiftly without knowledge is sin. He who sins, he sins who hastens with his feet. We can act quickly in the chasing of things that are inferior as opposed to seeking the deepness of knowledge, seeking to do things for the sake of gain, of material gain. That's the kind of haste action with the feet. We've seen this warned against over and over again throughout Proverbs. The foolishness of a man twists his ways and his heart frets against the Lord. When you have foolishness, the result is that you pick wrong ends and you pick wrong means. And so your path twists as opposed to the straight and narrow. And so the result is also that you don't have joy because your heart frets. Your heart frets against God. You're anxious and you don't trust God. Not having wisdom means you have foolishness. And foolishness twists the way of a man and makes him go to a bad place. Causes him to internally be anxious and untrusting toward God because he teaches himself not to believe God in acting on his foolishness rather than wisdom. Now, verse 4. Wealth makes many friends, but the poor is separated from his friend. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who speaks lies will not escape. Many entreat the favor of the nobility, And every man is a friend to one who gives gifts. All the brothers of the poor hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He may pursue them with words, yet they abandon him. And and the language there, abandon him, is not accurate. The, The more literal, I mean, it's fine. The meaning is just totally fine. But the literal languages are not. Are not what? How much more do his friends go far from him? He may pursue them. Who's them? His friends. He may pursue his friends with words, yet they are not. They're not friends. Now, what about the wife who stays loyal even when there's poverty? Is she a friend? And so, men, just... Do men tend to be poorer or richer when they're young as opposed to when they're old? So if a wife is loyal to you in your youth when you are poor, 
and she's beautiful. What do you owe her if her beauty fades and your riches increase? The institution of marriage in particular protects women. It's good for men. Men need it. But it's also a protection for women because what we see in the world of the rich is rich men throwing off their wives as they age and replacing them with younger women. That's the tendency. And the foolishness of feminism in our culture is to tear down the hard-fought institution by law of the Christian marriage and to replace it with sodomite marriage, to replace it with the destruction of marriage, to replace it with no-fault divorce, to make it so that there is nothing that is legally there to differentiate the married state from the unmarried state except for a horrific system for dealing with the ending of a marriage. And so then what we have is the elimination of the marriage institution and the requirement by law in some places to acknowledge what is not marriage as marriage. It is in the interest of women to defend the institution of marriage because when the woman has spent her life and spent her youth, there is a requirement by law that protects her from the unfaithfulness of the man if he, in his higher position of wealth as he ages, abandons the loyalty of the wife of his youth. The imposition of the patriarchal order in law is the protection of women. And the tearing down of marriage and the calling out of patriarchal, and they're right. Marriage is inherently patriarchal. They're right. We need to not dodge that. When, they, when people say marriage is inherently patriarchal, they are right. And so, that being the case, we have to, men in particular, be willing to say in public that we believe in biblical marriage, and we have to be willing to say it ought to exist. It's a good thing, and the people who want to destroy it hate women. The willingness to say that. Many people agree with you, but they are not willing to say it. The courage of those who are willing to say it helps others to feel like, maybe I could say this too. I can remember a time when people feared to say that they believed that marriage ought to be between a man and a man. Barack Obama was afraid to say that. Until he wasn't. Until the courage of men failed. And we were unwilling to say that biblical marriage is the only marriage. We are called men to be faithful to wives. And wives are called to be faithful to men. And the women sacrifice by giving their beauty and their youth and working with the man while he's poor. And the men are called, when they are rich and their wives are old, to be loyal. That is the beauty of the patriarchal order. That is the beauty 
of biblical marriage. It is a statement of faithfulness. Now, verse 7. All the brothers of the poor hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He may pursue them with words, yet they are not. The friends that abandon when you are in need are not friends. Verse 4, wealth makes many friends, but the poor is separated from his friend. It's easy to make friends when you have money. It's easy to draw people who appear to be friends. One of my favorite uninspired songs is Nobody Knows You When You're Down and Out. If you get a chance and it's not the Sabbath, you should look at Eric Clapton's version. Just YouTube. Anyways, when you rise back up again, everybody's your long-lost friend. I finally I'd known that you had free time in the last few years when you were not doing very well. I'd have given you a call. We'd have hung out. Just couldn't find you. Lost my phone. And then didn't think about any other way to get a hold of you. But I heard you're rich now. And so maybe we should hang out. Got your number. People find you when things are going well. And they tend to not find you when things are not going well. Wealth makes many friends, but the poor is separated from his friend. Now, there's a way in which people separate from you when you're, you're poor because they don't want to deal with your problems. But here's the other thing. Even those who are good friends, when you don't have resources, what can they do with you? They can help you. And who has an infinite amount of time to help other people? The helping... It's something that's limited. It's limited by how effectively they can meet their own obligations. And so even for those who are loyal, even for those who are true friends, there's a way in which poverty separates the poor from their friends. And so working to gain resources helps you to be useful. And so married people are friends. There are friends who are not married to each other. If you want to be a better friend, one of the things you seek to do is to be the kind of friend that the kind of friends you'd like to have would want to have. So you seek to have resources. You seek to be a blessing. You seek to help. And that also works with a spouse. If you want a good spouse, you try to be the kind of man that the kind of woman you'd want to marry would want to marry. That works for women too. Now, wealth makes many friends. The poor is separated from his friend. The poor man is hated by his brother. The poor man, his friends won't listen to him and they show that they're not his friends. Now, the idea that he's hated by his brother, what's that about? The idea there is that even those who have an enduring, 
covenant obligation because they're brothers in the faith or they're brothers in terms of sharing the same parents, right? That there's a, oh no, if there's somebody who needs help all the time. Now, we just read about this in Romans. The strong are to bear with the weaknesses of the weak. So, at the same time, isn't it obvious that bearing with weakness is difficult? Isn't it obvious that it's taxing? Do you prefer to have strong people around you that help you to improve and pull you up? Or do you prefer to have to pull other people up? Just generally. It's not a hard question. So, if that's the case, ideally, the friendships that you have, you would have opportunities to share in helping with each other's weaknesses and lifting each other up. You'd receive help and you'd give help. Right, so, that idea of, of the blessings of being able to use your strengths to help and to have your weaknesses be supported. And so, the church is designed that way. There's a division of labor where gifts are given and they're not given equally. Gifts are given, and they're not all given to each person. Gifts are given so that we can, in our strength, help with the weaknesses of each other. And so, in order to do that well, if you have things you want help with, you know one of the best ways to encourage people to be around you and to help you in your weaknesses? is to figure out what strengths you have, what gifts you have and to seek to use them to bless others so that they see ways that you are blessing them and it makes it easier for them to bless you. So here's, here's something I'm asking you to do. If you've got a piece of paper, write down for yourself that you want to, this evening, think about some strength you've got that you can use to bless some weakness that someone else has in the church. And I have lots of weaknesses, but it can't be me. So you have to find something that you are strong in, and you have to find some weakness of somebody else and how you can use that strength to bless their weakness that's what i'm asking you to do now verse five a false witness will not go unpunished and he who speaks lies will not escape many entreat the favor of the nobility and every man is a friend to one who gives gifts the connection here in terms of the idea of the false witness and not going unpunished this false witness relates to the perversity of lips back at verse 1 it's better to be poor and have integrity than to have perverse lips and to be a fool that would be the kind of man who speaks lies, who's a false witness. Now, why does anybody lie? You lie because you think it's worth lying to escape some consequence or a potential loss. You lie so that you can keep something. 
And that, doing that and keeping the thing, doing that and keeping the thing is worse than losing the thing and having integrity. And even if you manage to keep the thing, don't kid yourself. A false witness will not go unpunished. Don't kid yourself. He who speaks lies will not escape. So the idea here of how do you speak well to other people, whether it's in private or whether it's in the public sphere in courts, being a witness, how do you avoid destroying your integrity? It's the little things in the private life that train up the habits that make it so that somebody lies under oath in a court or not. A person who has integrity in the little things in the home is going to have integrity when speaking under oath about matters that could be perjury. One of the common themes I've found in modern movies is this. You know, there was this really good-looking, well-to-do guy with, like, character, and everybody thought he was great. But we got into battle, and he was a coward. And this guy, who was terrible, like the worst, just the worst, this guy was terrible. When we got into battle, he was really courageous. You know, my expectations were subverted. I didn't think the guy who seemed like he had everything, and who seemed like he had good character, would totally fail in the moment of trial. But he did. And you know, you just never know who's going to act like what in war, or when they're in a trial, or have something difficult. How many movies have you seen with that theme? How many stories pop into your mind? Like I, That's almost like word for word, like lines that I've heard in multiple movies. As though it's some profound thing. Here's that message. Let me, let me, let me simplify that theme for you just a little bit more. The character you build and the habits you build do not train and do not result in reliable fruit. You can act like anything, and maybe at the moment of trial you'll be awesome. Don't worry about it. Do what you want. That's the basic breakdown there. Also, don't expect good things of people that you see good things out of. They're really awful. That's the second one. Therefore, don't trust any of the structures of institutions. Don't trust authorities. Right? And, and don't trust those who have the benefits of the institutions. Now, if they're godless, sure, don't trust them. And the institutions have been taken over by the godless. But for some reason, they still pretend like they don't own the institutions. And they still pretend like there's this, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant man smoking cigars and you know, arguing from the Bible in every institution. There's this, this underbelly of this hidden Puritanism all over the country that will suddenly just rise up. If only it were so. But it's not. Or the institutions have been taken over. But there's still this message of hate the institutions, hate authority, and don't trust the appearance of character. And so anybody who raises up any sort of public religion, what's the immediate response? Oh, there's a paragon of virtue and integrity. And if only we had more public religion. No, you don't hear that. Hypocrite, separation of church and state, and why are you bringing God into this? 
That is the water we swim in and the air we breathe. So as soon as you seek to have any display of public righteousness, public religion, Christianity put forward, I guarantee it, you're going to get hypocrite. Why are you bringing God into this? Just do whatever and shut up. Right? Don't talk about God. Those are the things you're going to get. So these false things, this message that putting God before you publicly is unacceptable, and that anyone who does that is a hypocrite, and the idea that the prolonged display of character does not have any meaning and does not provide any sort of predictive value on how a person is going to behave. Those are lies. Those are lies that have been used to destroy virtue. Those are lies that make it so that we don't think that our courage depends upon the gradual building of courage. If you can't tell the truth to your friends in private, you are going to break your oath in public. One of the traps of doing well is that people want the favor of somebody who's got status and money. And if you use your status and money in a way where you're blessing those who are needy, you become known as one who gives gifts. And everybody loves people who give gifts. Why is it that People in authority often cultivate the sense that you have to sort of be harsh to people under your authority. Because when you're kind, people feel like they can ask you to help. And they also think they can take advantage of you. So many entreat the favor of the nobility, and that tends towards giving a rough answer. Because that's the way that you handle it to make it so that life is easier. Is separating yourself from the people under your authority and acting like there's a barrier and making it so that there's a greater difficulty to come and ask for things. Now, on the other end, like we talked about, even brothers who are around people who are a continual drain, who are unwilling to do the work rising above their current situation, tend towards hate. We tend to hate those who don't provide, don't generate. And friends are going to flee. So chapter 19, verse 8, begins a section on in-the-home relationship. He who gets wisdom loves his own soul. Now, the literal wording there is, he who gets heart loves his own soul. But what's the relationship of a heart and a soul there? They're the same thing. What's the point? If you enlarge your heart, you love your heart. If you enlarge your soul, you love your own soul. What what does that mean? How do you increase the size of your heart? We're not talking about a physical thing. We're talking about the spiritual. And so the way you increase the size of your heart is by increasing the amount of knowledge you have, the amount of wisdom you have, the amount of faith that you have. You store up the word of God in your heart, and as a result, the heart is made bigger. Now, if your heart is filled up with lies, your heart's not getting bigger. That's cancer. 
and it needs to be cut out. The heart grows by increasing in the knowledge of the truth. He who gets heart loves his own soul. So if you increase the knowledge that you possess in your soul, you love your own soul. And if you keep understanding, you'll find good. So get this. If you acquire wisdom, you are getting what is good for your soul. You're acting in a manner that is in accordance with your own well-being. You're, you're loving your own soul. And if you keep, you guard understanding. So you get wisdom, and then you guard it. You avoid lies to yourself. Right? What, what is the lie that motivates false witness bearing? It's believing that it's better to keep this thing rather than integrity. And so if you guard understanding so that you don't let those lies creep in, then you will find good. Why do you lie? To keep the good thing or to get something good. But the reality is if you guard your understanding to avoid believing that lie, you will find something good. This is a real subversion of your expectation. This is an actually profound subversion of your expectation. This is the nature of reality being revealed by the word of God and showing us that we are tempted toward lying. And we need to guard our understanding. And we will expect that if we tell the truth, even to ourselves, that we will find good. That introduces the section. Verse 9, a false witness will not go unpunished. Does that sound familiar? See, it's connecting back to that theme. And he who speaks lies shall perish. It's amplifying the threat. Luxury is not fitting for a fool, right? If you lie to get money and then you have luxury, guess what? You have luxury and you're a fool. Luxury is not fitting for a fool. Much less for a servant to rule over princes. If you can't rule your own soul, why do you think you should get money so that you can rule over other people who can rule themselves better? They're princes. If you lie and they have integrity and you get money because you're willing to lie and then you can hire them so they become your servants, a servant is ruling princes. And so we look at the short term and we think, well, I've got to do this to get ahead. I've got to do whatever to get ahead. I've got to... I've got to lie. I've got to avoid the harm here. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who speaks lies shall perish. Luxury is not fitting for a fool, much less for a servant to rule over princes. The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his, it is, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. The king's wrath is like the roaring of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. So verses 11 and 12, they connect up to verses 9 and 10. There's this danger of telling falsehood, and there's a danger of rewards going to fools. And there's also a danger of shattering relationships too quickly. And so... A man with discretion is slow to anger. A man with discretion is slow to anger. And his glory 
is to overlook a transgression. Now, people think when they are wronged that a way of trying to get what they want in the future is to react with anger. Why do people react with anger? Well, typically they're trying to defend themselves. They're trying to defend something that they have. And so you go, if I'm angry, that will get this person to not do this anymore. But instead, it actually brings shame. Right? In, in the pursuit of honor, reacting with anger brings shame. And so a man with discretion is slow to anger, and it brings him glory to overlook a transgression. If you're in authority, how often do you think you get lied to? Sometimes. Like, if you're in more authority, do you think you get lied to more often or less often? I would imagine when people are in authority, they get lied to more. There's lots of reasons. People want to flatter you. People want to avoid being punished. And so you're likely, if you're in authority, to have people bear false witness around you more often, to speak lies around you more often, to fool you into getting rewards that make them have luxury more often. And you can make wrong judgments and put the wrong people in charge of other people and put the wrong people under other people. (coughs) And if you react quickly, right, if you get angry quickly, you're going to make wrong judgments more often. And so what's happening here is is a reminder that if you're in authority, you are to be careful, to be slow to anger. And when you think that you've been lied to, to be considering carefully whether or not you should overlook that transgression. That you should err on the side of overlooking transgressions. On the same token... If you're the one who's under authority, not every king overlooks every transgression. The king's wrath is like a roaring lion. If you, if you don't know any kings other than Jesus, then who does this apply to? Anybody who's in authority in your life. In the house, which includes, you know, the mother and father, and the master and mistress, if you're under authority in employment, if you're dealing with a civil magistrate, if you're dealing with a church officer, people in authority, their wrath is like a roaring lion. When they're angry, it's a sign, like roaring, of the danger of their teeth. Their anger is a sign of the danger of their teeth. And so when they're angry, you need to seek to repent or give yourself a just defense so that you can subside the anger. Sometimes the best thing to do is to get away for a bit. But there's this warning here, don't lie and get the wrath of of an authority. The wrath of a king is like the roaring of a lion. On the other side, 
if you're an honest person, if you have integrity, even if you're in a low position, the favor of a king is like dew on the grass, and the dew provides nourishment for the grass and helps them to rise. And so honoring legitimate authority is a way to improve your condition and to be gradually nourished. And so that means not bearing false witness, even when in the short term it seems like it'd be better for you. Now verse 13, a foolish son is the ruin of his father. People who are in authority, like fathers, who have people under their authority, like sons, if you care for those who are under your authority, that results in your good, but failing to care and seeing them foolish brings ruin to the one in authority. And on the other side of that, even the lieutenants, the chief lieutenants of a person in authority can become a source of strife. The contentions of a wife are a continual dripping. Why are the contentions of a wife like a continual dripping? Well, if you have a wife who contends with you on a regular basis, who are you around more often than your wife? Well, if you're living in a manner that accords with marriage, nobody. And so if she's contentious, if there's a tendency towards contention, it's going to be continual dripping. And so that goes back to, remember, the glories of having a godly wife, but also think about the importance as a husband of leading your wife well, washing her with the word, helping to make it so that she is in a good place. Why don't husbands do this? Because confronting your wife is hard. And if you don't confront your wife, there's peace temporarily. Sort of like if you give a false witness, you can escape a temporary harm. And so by bearing false witness, what you can do is avoid a temporary loss. The same thing occurs with not confronting wives. And so it's a trade-off. Short-term loss for long-term gain. That is one of the ways that you die for your wife. It's probably the most likely way that I would die. Not actually. But the idea that there's this, act, there's this danger of the loss of relationship. Right? When, you, when you confront your wife, there's a danger of the loss of relationship. It's limited. Typically, it's not going to endanger the relationship in a long-term way but it does create a period of time of loss. Now, if there is an engaging with the wife, then the result is going to be that the wife becomes less contentious and the wife will instead become a partner, someone who is loyal, who goes through poverty with you, who goes through hardship with you. And the result is that the relationship is better in the latter days than in the former days. And there's a beautifying that occurs with the wife. And as her soul is more beautiful through that teaching, and through that engagement, even though the outward man perish, the inward man is made new day by day. And there is a beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And that gentle and quiet spirit 
is more beautiful than the glories of human youth. Now, in terms of sons, foolishness is bound in the hearts of child. Foolishness is bound in the hearts of children. And so, if you do not discipline children, then they remain foolish. And they become the ruin of the parents. Now, verse 14, rich, houses and riches are an inheritance from fathers. But a prudent wife is from the Lord. You can't make your wife prudent. A prudent wife is a gift. And that's true even if you didn't marry a prudent wife. If you married a wife who's not prudent and washed with the word, the expectation is that the Lord of heaven will take that word and will renew that woman and transform her. And then he gives her to you after she's already married to you, renewed and made more prudent. And so you apply the ordinary means and you pray for the blessing of God. Now, laziness casts one into a deep sleep and an idle person will suffer hunger. That seems like it's just a random thing all of a sudden. But here's the, here's the way it's connected. Dealing with sons and dealing with wives is hard, but what's the complaint about men? What do you typically hear from wives about their Christian husbands? They won't engage in the work. They won't do the thing. There's this problem, and it's not being addressed. They want to do this other stuff, and they won't deal with the problems in our home, and our home is falling apart, and our pets' heads are falling off. Now, that problem of the husband... I don't want to do anything. I just want peace. I just want to be left alone. Like, I get it. This desire to not deal with things. But guess what that is? It's a sleep. A little sleep. A little slumber. A little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty comes upon you like an armed man. And that poverty can be a poverty of relationship. A poverty of not having people in your home. It can be a poverty of actual goods an idle person will suffer hunger if you don't do the work of engaging with the relational aspects of the home and the disciplining of children and the leading of a wife and deal with helping to see things put in order there is a poverty that comes upon the home and there's a lack of things to offer and even where there are luxuries the luxuries are not enjoyable because herbs where peace and quietness are are better than feasting where there is strife and so even the feasting is a sort of poverty the verse 16 he who keeps the commandment keeps his soul but he who is careless of his ways will die He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given. Chasten your son while there is hope, and do not set your 
part on his destruction. A man of great wrath will suffer punishment, for if you rescue him, you'll have to do it again. Listen to counsel and receive instruction that you may be wise in your latter days. There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. What is desired in a man is kindness, and a poor man is better than a liar. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it will abide in satisfaction. He will not be visited with evil. Do you see the repetition of the themes that are in the earlier part? What we have here is this collecting together, and it's the repeating in of these things, and it's connecting, and it's showing us the application. So we have the public element and the private element. Now, if you keep the commandments, you keep your soul. Think about that linguistic play. If you keep the commandments, you keep your soul. Right? Carefully observing the commandments is a guarding of your soul. Carefully observing the commandments is a guarding of your soul. But being careless in how you go that's the opposite of keeping the commandments. Being careless in how you go leads to death. So life and death are in your hands. You choose the direction. You choose what you ought to do. And if you pursue wisdom, keeping the commandments seems more and more obvious. It seems more and more wise. And if you are careless about your ways and don't study and do not consider and do not think, but you go about doing what feels good in the moment, that is a twisting road, but it always twists to death. Now, speaking of being intentional about the way you live as opposed to being careless, if you just act the way you feel like, how are you going to treat poor people, people that are in lower status, people that are needy? Even the brothers hate them, and their friends show themselves to not be friends. If you do what you feel like, you're not going to spend any time around people who actually need your service. But he who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord. What kind of interest rate do you think the Lord pays? You think it's like better than inflation or pretty hard to keep up with inflation. I think God keeps up with inflation. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given. Chasten your son while there's hope, and do not set your heart on his destruction. Right? Literally, do not set your heart to put him to death. If you don't discipline your son, what you're doing is you're putting him to death. You're saying, I would like you to live in such a way that you will commit capital crimes so that you can die. If you don't discipline your son, you're setting him up for destruction. A man of great wrath will suffer punishment. This is an explanation. If you don't chasten your son, do you think it's the natural tendency of sinful fallen men to be easily angered? Or do you think it's the natural tendency of sinful fallen men to be restrained and slow to anger and self-controlled? 
If you don't discipline your sons, they will have great wrath. They will suffer punishment. The suffering of punishment, what types of crimes come from wrath? Assault, battery, murder. If you don't train your son to not have great wrath, but discipline, then you're essentially putting him to death. You're setting him up on the path to death. If you rescue him, you'll have to do it again. Now, which one's easier? Disciplining the son in the youth or rescuing the son over and over again from his wrath until he falls into death? These are the options that are laid before you. This is an admonition to fathers to discipline their sons. 20. Listen to counsel and receive instruction. This is now an admonition to sons. So you youth, you boys and girls, you young men and young women, listen to counsel. I know, it's hard. Parents just don't understand. Will Smith said it best. Parents don't understand. But maybe they do. Maybe, just think about it for a second, maybe their humanity is like unto yours. Maybe they have read the same Bible that you have, and maybe they've read it more. And if that's the case, then perhaps listening to counsel and receiving instruction will be for your good. You might even find that if you listen to counsel and receive instruction, that you will be wise in your latter days. Now, if you think you're wise now, you might find that you'll be wiser. Or you might find when you're wise in your latter days that you weren't as wise as you thought you were. There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. We think we know what needs to happen to get what's good. But we will find that many of the things that we plan do not happen. We will find that many of our plans perish. But God's plans always succeed. They will stand. And the law of God tells us how to pursue the ends that God has appointed. And so, if we follow the ends that God has commanded and use the means that God has commanded, then we will find that even if our plans perish, we will see good fruit. And so listening to counsel and receiving instruction to help us to not be deceived, to not deceive ourselves, helps us to grow in wisdom and helps our latter days to be more sweet than the days of our youth. Our culture tells us that being young and enjoying pleasures when the body is strong to receive pleasure is the good life. That's a lie. That is a lie that makes it so that the latter days will be days of foolishness and prevents wisdom from being passed to the next generation. It is a very easy thing to destroy wisdom in a civilization. It is a very difficult thing to establish it. And so institutions which are difficult to build, we should be careful to tear down 
We should be cautious about tearing down. Verse 22, what is desired in a man's, what is desired in a man is kindness. Now the word there is hesed. Okay, so mercy is the best general translation for that word. It's often translated as loving kindness. What is desired in a man is mercy, and a poor man is better than a liar. In general, people want to be around merciful or kind people. It's kind of obvious why. If you're around merciful or kind people, you are likely to be a recipient of mercy or kindness. And if you know yourself very well, you are likely to know that you are going to need mercy very soon. And if you need mercy very soon, it's good to be around people who are merciful. So what's desired in a man is kindness. And a poor man is better than a liar. These are the social traits, the idea of being around merciful people and being around the poor who have integrity. If you are merciful and poor and have integrity, and you are around people who are merciful and poor and have integrity, you will not all be poor for very long because you will learn to work together very well and you will accomplish many things. And as your strengths increase together and you learn to bless each other, as you are merciful, have integrity. The thing to be replaced there is the poverty. That's the thing that will be displaced. Verse 23. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it will abide in satisfaction. He will not be visited with evil. We lie because we do not fear God and we think we can escape harm by lying. We lie to ourselves in order to justify getting what we want. If we fear God and speak the truth even to ourselves, that encourages life in us and around us. It encourages satisfaction And it removes curse. And so, you think back on the importance of your companions and remember, he who gets, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. The close companions of your life are a significant influence on you the closest companion of your life will be the most significant influence on you. And if you want to fear God and see blessing, choosing well in the selection of your companions and especially your spouse will encourage you in that. And it will help you to increase in the possession of the favor of God and the blessings of God. And it will encourage you in those relationships to be careful to discipline your sons and to help your wives to grow in gentleness and quietness so that instead of contentions you have cooperation and loyalty and holiness. There are comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.
Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would bless us in our companionship, and that you would bless us in terms of interaction with those in authority. Help us to exercise authority well. Help us to be good companions to each other. I pray for those who have not spouses, that you would help them to find godly spouses. And for those who have spouses, I ask that you would help us to grow in serving each other well and encouraging each other. That you would cause the men to work diligently to lead. That you would cause the women to seek to be gentle and quiet. And that you would cause our homes to be a beautiful display of the relationship between Christ and the church. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.